So good morning once again. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that we're able to worship together uh, in the midst of everything that's happening in this world and in our community. Um, As we continue in our worship, uh, let's turn to uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're going to continue in our series uh, through Mark. We're in chapter 10, and we're going to read a very short passage today, 13 through 16. Mark 10, 13 through 16. Through 16. You know, last week we had a very difficult passage and a message, uh, and a message to, uh, to hear from Christ regarding divorce and marriage. Right? Jesus had a very different view of marriage uh, that went against the cultural norm and the trend of his day. Uh, the Jewish culture in first century, being that it was very patriarchal, uh, had laws that made it easy for men to divorce their wives. Um, marriage was seen as a disposable contract And by the slightest error of the wife, a man can write a certificate of divorce. Um, And so Jesus had a very different view, obviously, and uh, he corrected this distorted view of marriage uh, that his culture had. And he taught of God's original design for marriage. Marriage is not a disposable contract, but rather a covenant, uh, which is binding and permanent. Marriage ultimately reflects Uh, the covenant-keeping love of Jesus Christ to his church. Uh, And because of this covenant, uh, it creates a permanent union between Christ and his bride, the church. And so divorce goes against this design that uh, God created for marriage. And so again, we see last week the the countercultural, the subversive nature of the gospel, how it's just so different than what this world believes in. And so the truth of God does not change because of trends and because of social pressures. And unfortunately, many churches have folded under that pressure and decided to compromise God's truth and redefine what marriage is. And so today, we're going to see yet another countercultural, subversive message from Jesus Christ. And we can think today's passage as kind of a sequel to last week's passage. So we're staying in the theme of family. And uh, today, we're going to look at children children. So look with me once again, verse 13 in chapter 10. Let's give our full attention to the reading of God's word. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is God's word. Amen. And so, you know, this, we've all seen this portrait somewhere, either in a church or in someone's home, right? You see a picture of Jesus, and he takes a child into his lap, and there are other children surrounding him. They're all looking up, and they're smiling at him, right? We've all seen this picture. It's a very famous picture, Uh, But I don't think it really does uh, justice for what's actually happening here. Uh, There's so much that's being left out of this portrait of this smiling Jesus and these smiling children. If we take a look at this passage, it's a little bit more jarring, right? And a little bit more disruptive because there is resistance, there is rebuke, there is anger, and then there is this message about children that is just so to the contemporaries there listening to the, the audience, it, it just would have been absurd. So, you know, those pain, I, wanted, I want you guys to take that painting or that portrait out of your minds and let's look at this passage in a new 
way, the, the real way that uh, the scripture intended. And so last week, we saw Jesus' opponents trying to set a trap, right? Trying to hinder Jesus from his ministry. This time around in our passage, Jesus' own disciples are hindering Jesus from his ministry. And it's all surrounding this topic of children. Now, in the context, we are told they were bringing children uh, in, in a uh, Mark-like fashion. He does, he's not really interested in details. So we don't know who they are. And that actually really doesn't matter. All we know is that children were, bring, uh, were uh, brought to Jesus for Jesus to touch them. Now, this was a universal, universal sign back in the, uh, Jesus' day as a sign of blessing. So they wanted Jesus to lay hands and bless these children. And what the disciples did was rebuke the they that were bringing these children. And in turn, Jesus rebukes them, and he embraces the children and blesses them. So what's going on here? What we're seeing here are two very different attitudes towards children, kind of competing views of children. And so like last week, I only have two main ideas for us uh, in this passage. First one is this. In regarding to children, their place in the world, the children's place in the world, is my first idea that I want to share. And second one is their place in God's kingdom. So first, their place in the world. Secondly, their place in God's kingdom. So first, what was their place in the world? So we can learn a lot about the place, position, and status of these children in the first century of Palestine by the disciples' reaction and response to these people bringing children to Jesus. Verse 13 again. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. And the word here for rebuke is very strong and severe. Other places that this word rebuke is being used, uh, you guys remember the father that brought the demon-possessed boy, his son, to uh, Jesus. Jesus rebuked that spirit and cast him out. It was a very strong rebuke. Another uh, place where we see this word rebuke is when Jesus opposes his opponents, when he rebukes them. So this word now, the disciples are exemplifying this type of strong and severe rebuke to these people bringing children. And so what does that tell us about the children in Jesus' day? See, similar to women who had very little rights, dignity, and value, and privileges, the same could be said of children, right? The same could be said for children. Children were pushed out to the margins. They were seen, as, they were seen with no value, useless, right, in Jesus' day. And like women, children derive their value from their relationship with the male figure. Because the chief purpose of marriage was what? To have children specifically sons, to then carry on the family line. And so sons held a little bit more value than daughters. But other than that, they were useless. Uh, only when they reached adolescence did they hold any value because they can now work in the field. They can actually contribute to the family. And so children were seen as second class, insignificant, pushed out to the margins, they, they held no value, right? And so they actually had no place in the Jewish first century Palestine world. They had no place. And the disciples are reflecting this type of attitude, this cultural attitude towards children. 
And yet again, we see the dullness and slowness of the disciples. Uh, they, they failed to understand who Jesus was and who he actually came to save. We, we know that Jesus did not come for the healthy, but actually the sick. He came for those that were needy and destitute, and the disciples didn't get that. But not only that, only, a few, only one chapter before, Jesus gives them a lesson about children, right? If we look at Mark chapter 9, verse 37, the disciples are competing against each other. They're saying, who's the best disciple? Who's going to be the greatest disciple in Jesus' kingdom? And what Jesus does, he sits, he sits them down, and then he brings a child into his lap and tells them this in verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This would have been a complete shock to the disciples because of their attitude towards children. Jesus chooses to use a child as an object lesson for discipleship and salvation. This would have been offensive for the disciples. But this was just a chapter ago, a moment ago, where Jesus says, if you receive a, ch- a child, you're receiving me. So essentially what the disciples are doing by rebuking these children or these people bringing children, they're actually rejecting Jesus Christ. When Jesus clearly says, and he, and he shares his position on children, And so the disciples forgot this important lesson. And that's why they rebuked these people bringing children to Jesus. And so children had no place, no significance, no value. How about for us today? What place or where can we place children in our world today? I think it's completely different. I think it's fair that we've swung to the complete other extreme. The inverse has happened. Instead of children deriving their value from their parents, parents derive their value from their children. Right? Isn't this true? And that's why we have them in all sorts of activities, and we want them to be the brightest and most athletic. Right? And this is oftentimes reactive to our own upbringing because our parents didn't show us attention because our parents weren't there. They didn't show us affection. And so we react and we swing to the other. I'm not going to make the same mistake as my parents, so I'm going to prioritize my children, and I'm going to show them all the attention. I'm going to give them everything they want. All right, so if children were marginalized in Jesus' time, today they've become our masters. See, the place of children in Jesus' world and in our world is vastly different. So we have to be able to critique Right? The first century Palestine, the Eastern culture of seeing no value in children, but at the same time, we have to be honest about ourselves and our culture and our attitude towards children where we celebrate them, where they dictate our lives. They rule our lives. They become little mini-gods and goddesses. So we have to do both. See, children are gifts of God. They're a blessing from God. We are called to raise them in the gospel, to teach them to love and know Jesus. Right? We should not dis- dismiss them like the first century, right? but we should not also devote ourselves to them as if they're our idols. Right? And so for the most part, our culture and society and our view of children has, 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 has changed. And we place supreme value on our children. So how does this relate to us? Right? 
If that's our attitude towards children today, what does this passage, what is it trying to communicate to us? It's this, that we have our own version of children in our culture and society. The people that we push out to the margins, the people that we consider second class, that we won't even give our ears to listen to, we have people, we have our own version, our equivalent to, church, to children in first century Palestine, we have our own version today. And I want to share who I think those people are. Sadly to say, I still think it's women. Women are still being pushed out to the margins. We've made improvements, right? We've made improvements, but still, the honor, dignity, and worth of women in our culture and society today is not what it should be in the way that God explains it to be. So I want to include women in there. I also want to include immigrants in there, refugees, racial minorities, those that are homeless and poor. These are the people in our culture and society that has pushed them out to the margins. We won't even listen to them. We won't even give them a second thought. Why? Because we're using the same standard that the first century Palestine, the Jewish people used to assess the worth of a children. We use that same standard for the people that we push out to the margins. What is that standard? What is the American standard? How do we base someone's worth and their value? Is it not their education, their career, the car that they drive, the house that they live in, their credentials, what tax bracket they fall under? And so we will give priority to those people that we think are valuable based on those standards, and everyone else has pushed them out. Sadly to say, we're no different than what's happening here with the disciples. We have our own version of children. And so Jesus calls them out. Jesus then rebukes them. Right? Are we a church that falls under the standards of the world, or are we going to reflect the kingdom of the gospel? Is the question. And again, the disciples' attitude toward the children reflect their culture. There was no place for children, but Jesus rebukes his disciples, explains why children are, why they have priority, and why they, why they have a special place in his kingdom. He's going to explain it to us. So this is the second idea, the place of children in God's kingdom. Verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. You know, this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark where we're told that Jesus was indignant. Now, what does that word mean? It means that Jesus was aroused with anger. He was angry, furious, like furious about what the disciples were doing. And this is an attribute of Jesus that we want to just simply pass and look over because we don't want the angry Jesus, right? We just give us the, the, the Jesus loving and kissing and embracing children. No, Jesus was angry with his disciples. And his anger tells us something about what he values, like what, what, what his heart breaks for. We, we know, right? We get an inside look at what Jesus' heart is like when he's angry. And so Jesus was aroused with anger because the disciples were barring the very individuals that actually belonged to his kingdom. Now this reminds me of, you know, I still love Jeremy Lin. I know his, his career is not the same. Uh, but when he got traded to the Charlotte Hornets, 
he went to the practice facility, wanting to get in to, 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 to check in. The security guard there would not let him in. So Jeremy Lin was, was uh, wanting to get in, and the security guard is like, no, who are you? He, Jeremy Lin did not fit the profile of someone that should be in the NBA. He kind of looked like me, right? Tall, Asian guy, skinny, right? Didn't, he didn't fit that profile. So actually, he could not go in when actually he belonged. The same thing is happening here. Uh, these children belonged in God's kingdom, but the disciples were barring them from experiencing Jesus' blessing. And so then Jesus, in anger, rebukes his disciples and tells them why children belong, right? And this statement that Jesus made in verse 14 is just so offensive, given, right, the cultural attitude towards children. But then he explains it, verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, I've got to be completely honest, and I, I like to think I'm honest with you guys on, uh, on the pulpit. You know, before I became a father and when I read this passage, I totally got it because I love children. I still do love children, but I love children. I just thought they were just the greatest. And so when I read this, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. A child is a good model, right, for someone that qualifies to be in God's kingdom. But now that I have three kids, I was really puzzled by this passage, right, because I have a five-year-old, and a three-year-old. And so I, I really wrestled with this passage. Now, before I, I share, just honestly, I love my kids. I, I think the world of them, I, I, they're the greatest gift and blessing that God has given to me and Jane. But they are, they are sinners. <laughs> Complete, utter sinners. And, and so when I look at my children, I, it's just constant affirmation of the doctrine of total depravity. Like, they just naturally are, are selfish, naturally jealous. I, we don't teach them any of this. They just naturally show, right? And their lying is becoming, they're just getting so sophisticated in how they lie. Uh, it's just crazy. So when I look at this passage, how can children be a model for God's kingdom? It actually makes no sense to me now. All right, so I love my kids. Don't, don't think I hate them. I love them. But I just didn't get it. I don't get it. Why are children's models... For, for those that qualify to be in God's kingdom. Why does Jesus celebrate them? What quality or characteristics do they possess to get them in, is a question. All right, so let's assume the best of our children. All right, let's just assume the best, all right? They're innocent at their best, pure, humble, fun, spontaneous, and cute, all right? We could all say that about children, especially if you're not a parent, but... If these were the qualities that Jesus was talking about in who should belong to the kingdom of God, then actually the disciples don't fit this description because the disciples are arrogant. They're, they're hard to learn. And I'm pretty sure they weren't cute either. A lot of them were fishermen. They probably smelled. So those aren't, the, those, aren't, those aren't the standards that I don't think the characteristics that Jesus is talking about. So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? And the key to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate and what he's trying to teach us is in the word children. And this is where the English translation sometimes falls short. The Greek word here is padia. What that means is a very, very young child. And actually the Gospel of Luke in this same instance 
translates this word child as an infant. Infant. So infants were being brought to Jesus for Jesus to lay hands and to bless them. That's the key to understand. So my mistake, right, I was thinking about my five and three-year-old when I should have been actually thinking about my nine-month-old infant. And the key to understanding this is how does an infant receive? How does an infant receive? They have no problem receiving, right? All they do is receive. And when, when they're in need, what do they do? They have the most dramatic way of telling us that they're in need. Right? They scream their heads off when their diaper is, when, when, when you know, they go number two in their diaper. They scream their heads off when they're hungry. They scream their heads off when they want someone to hold them. They're, they're, they're in a, uh, the prime example of what it means to receive and to call out when they're in need. That's the key in understanding this object lesson that Jesus is giving to his disciples of who belongs to the kingdom of God. Only those that are in need. How does an infant receive? All they do is receive. They actually suck all the energy and life out of us. And they have no problem telling us that that's what they need. There's a stark contrast between an infant and an adult, isn't there? Isn't there such a stark contrast in how an infant receives and how an adult has such a hard time receiving? Because everything in our lives, wow, we, we, we work hard so that we don't have to be on the receiving end. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to be the one giving, right? Give, giving to others. That's why Asians are infamous, right? They say, oh, I got to go to the restroom. And then they pay for the bill behind their, the, the people's backs. Why? Why? Because they don't want to be the ones to be in debt. Or they, they want to be the ones to give, right? Because to receive is a sign of weakness. To be always on the receiving end, to get handouts, it's always, it, it means that you're weak, you're incompetent. And so that's why Jesus uses an infant as a model of how you actually get into God's kingdom. And I personally, I, I, it's, it's still a struggle, struggle for me because of my pride. I have a hard time receiving at times. That is why the religious of Jesus' day, those that were experts of God's law, could not go into God's kingdom. Because they thought that they possessed every essential element to actually qualify to get into God's kingdom. When actually to get into God's kingdom, you have to come empty-handed. You have to be totally bankrupt. You got to be in utter and complete need. That's why the religious leaders couldn't do it. Because they didn't think they needed anything. They, they were self-sufficient. The kingdom of God is only for those who need Jesus. And there's no greater example of neediness than a baby. Just walk outside these doors, go into that room, and look at all those babies in there. All they do is cry. All they do is need. But yet, they're the prime example of who belongs to the kingdom of God. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He's not allowing us to be childish. He wants us to be childlike in our faith. And childlike faith is a clear acknowledgement of one's utter and complete need and then looking to Jesus to fill that need. That is what childlike faith is. Because we're not to have childish faith. 
because the Bible actually calls us to mature and grow and to bear fruits. But in order to get in, to be a citizen, you need to be childlike in faith. You got to know your need and to look to Jesus. See, salvation can't be earned. It could only be given to us by a gracious Savior who can provide. Do you see it? Do you see what's happening here? It's not just about children. We see two very competing worldviews and ideas regarding children. Right? So in the world, you have to earn a place. You have to earn a place in the world. To have any significance and worth, you have to earn a place. In God's kingdom, you, all, you can only be given a place. In the world, the way up is up. In the kingdom of God, the way up is actually down. Humility, desperateness, destitution. That's how you get in. In the world, your worth is found in belonging. Right? You're you're worthy because you belong. In the gospel kingdom, your worth comes from who you belong to. So again, to have childlike faith is to know your utter and complete lacking. You realize you don't have what it takes to be a part of God's kingdom because God's kingdom requires perfection and holiness. So in face of God, you see, wow, I'm lacking. I don't have the essential qualities. I don't have holiness and righteousness. And then when you realize your need, then you cry out like an infant because you're in need. And then you see Jesus who fills that very need to provide a way for you to experience salvation. That is why when the prophet Isaiah spoke of Jesus Christ, the one who's going to be the bearer of the good news of the gospel, that gospel is going to come first to who? To the poor. Good news to the poor. Not to the rich, not to the self-sufficient, not to the religious, but to the poor. It's just so flipped upside down. We do everything in our lives. That is counter to what the gospel and the kingdom of God requires. The Bible tells us that we are all needy and in want. You're all needy and you're all in want. But you know what the world will tell you? You don't have to be. Get everything you can. Get the security that you can. And so so we do all these things to not be in need and not be in want. But what that does, it just gives us a temporary outside superficial cover, right? Right? Just because you're rich does not mean you're spiritually rich. Underneath it all, underneath all of the things that we have, behind all our resumes and our credentials and our, our family, our house, our cars, is still a desperate sinner in need of God's grace. And so Jesus takes these infants into his arms. He lays his hands on them and blesses them. To close, so in our passage, we see the children's place in the world. We saw the children's place in God's kingdom. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, where are you? Where do you fit in? What profile do you fit under? The kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God? 
Where are you? So I want to speak to the people that aren't Christians today. You have not made a profession of faith, but you want to be. You want to be a Christian. I just want to encourage you today. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to come out to church for three months and then decide. You don't have to read the entire Bible. You don't have to jump through all these religious hoops to be a Christian. All you need to do is see God and see your utter and complete helplessness to, me- to measure up to his standard. That's all you need to do. So you need to see that you're lacking, that you're desperate in need of someone to save you. And once you realize your need, look to the cross. That is why Jesus came. That's why he died, to make provision so that you can be a part of his kingdom. As a free gift of grace, you don't have to do anything. You just have to simply acknowledge truth about who you are, and that is that you're a sinner, that you don't have what it takes, and then look to Christ. If that's you today and you want to make that profession of faith, please come and talk to myself or Pastor Paul. We would love to pray with you and talk with you. If I may speak to the Christians here today, which kingdom do you reflect to others? Which kingdom do you reflect to others? Do you represent the kingdom of this world that has all these standards and criteria for you to have worth and value? Or do you, look at the, do you look at others or do you see others through the lens of the gospel, the kingdom of God, where God sees our neediness and he responds. He's generous. He's abundant in giving things and providing things. Which kingdom do we fall under? How do we see others? Because if you're in the kingdom of the world, you're going to make people jump through hoops to get into your good graces. But if you're under the kingdom of God, open arms. Bring in everyone. Those that are homeless, those that are immigrant, refugees, those that we want to push out to the margins, we should embrace. This culture that, that is pushed out, we should embrace. So what is our attitude those, to those that are, are in the margins? Lastly, to those that are struggling in your faith, you're struggling with sin. Maybe you're struggling with depression, that, that addiction that is just beating you up. If that's you today and you need help, let's look at our children. Let's look at our babies and do what they do and cry out to God. It's okay. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to come to church and dress nicely and put on a smile when actually you're dying inside. Cry out to God. Cry out to him. He will hear you. He'll respond to you graciously. Christ ensures that our voices will go heard if we cry out to God. Why? Why? It's because Jesus himself became like a baby. No, he became a baby when he condescended. In the incarnation, he subjected himself to be a baby. He not only communed with those that were out in the margins, he became the ultimate example of what it means to be marginalized. He became a, a, he, he was crucified on that cross as a criminal when he was innocent, dying the death that we deserved so that we can go heard. Our cries can go heard. And so brothers and sisters, if that's you today, you're desperately in need of God to hear your cries. Let's do that. Let's cry. Let's be honest. And so let's respond to him in prayer and in worship. Let's pray. Before I close in prayer, I want to give you guys an opportunity to respond. Um, 
Where are you is the question. What kingdom do you fall under? The kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God? All right, so if you need to do some real like self-reflection and checking your own hearts and your attitude towards other people, have that time with God and ask God, please help me to reflect your gospel of grace. And if you're in a position of, it's just hard these days, you're just weak and tired and you're struggling and you're suffering, let's cry out. Let's cry out in humility and in surrender and desperation. Let's cry out to him and ask God, please, I need you. And I believe that God will be faithful and respond and he will send his Holy Spirit to comfort us and reassure us of Jesus Christ, his love and his affection towards us and the provision of the cross. Let's pray together and I'll close after a minute. Redeem us, restore us for your glory and for our good.